Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. Yesterday, we had the closing arguments in the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd, and now the case is with the jury. Now, if the jury is going to render a just verdict, one that is consistent with the facts and the evidence presented during trial, they would come back with not guilty on all three counts. But unfortunately, I do not believe that the jury is going to be capable of ignoring all the emotion and everything that is going on and render a just verdict. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on a number of jurors to convict. The question is, will a conviction be unanimous, which of course is what is required in order to convict, or will there be a few jurors who hold out for a just verdict despite all of the external pressures for a conviction. Now, of course, if there really was justice in this case, there wouldn't even be a trial because based on the evidence, there never should have been a prosecution because the government is not supposed to prosecute somebody that they don't actually believe committed a crime. And there is no way that you could objectively look at this evidence and conclude that Chauvin is guilty of murder. In fact, All you have to do is look at the autopsy report that was prepared by Dr. Baker. Dr. Baker is the single most important medical witness in this case. 
None of the other doctors that the prosecution called, I think you completely disregard everything that they're saying because they're hired guns. And even if they weren't hired, they're guns. They're people who are trying to make a name for themselves by being one of the good guys and showing that they're not racist by blaming this death on Chauvin and his knee and asphyxiation, right? And in fact, I think that it's even a mistrial and there's so many different ways for um, a appeal on this case, uh, but that's one of them in that the prosecution is putting witness after witness after witness up on that stand to basically say the exact same thing. I mean, why do you need so many medical experts to all say that Floyd died of asphyxiation, right? And to ignore all the other causes of death. All you need is one doctor to say that. I think they're trying to create the false impression that there's some kind of consensus of opinion in the medical community that this is how George Floyd died, when maybe those were the only doctors they were able to find who would come to that erroneous conclusion. But when it comes to Dr. Baker, he is the guy that did the autopsy. So the prosecution doesn't get to cherry pick doctors and find the few that are willing to testify like this. You're kind of stuck with the doctor that performed the autopsy. So this guy is unbiased, right? He wasn't picked by either side. He did the autopsy. So he is giving his opinion and it hasn't been filtered through uh, the agenda of either the prosecution or the defense. So I put the most weight on Dr. Baker, and you can forget about everybody else. And based on Dr. Baker and based on his own autopsy, you can't convict Chauvin on anything. And in fact, based on this autopsy, he never should have been charged with anything, which is probably why originally there were no charges. There were only charges when the mob, when the public demanded that Chauvin be charged. And why did they demand that he be charged? Well, because of that video uh, with the nine minutes of Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck. Now, instead of trying to explain to the public why what they were seeing wasn't really the whole story and there was a lot more to it than what meets the eye, nobody wanted to do that. Nobody was willing to confront the mob and try to explain that, hey, this isn't about racism. This isn't a white cop killing uh, an innocent black man. There's more to the story. No, no, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to take the easy way out and appease the mob and show how they weren't racist and that they, you know, they, they, they were good people too. And so they demanded uh, that we bring this innocent man before charges because that's what the mob wanted. They wanted a sacrifice and it was going to be Chauvin. But look at the autopsy itself, right? Forget about just Dr. Baker's testimony. Read the autopsy. You can look at the cause of death. And so the immediate and the underlying cause of death is cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating police law enforcement, subdue, restraint, and compression, right? So this is the immediate and underlying cause of death. Now, what does he mean by that? Because on the witness stand, Dr. Baker was asked to explain what he meant by complicating, right? Because the immediate cause of death was a cardiopulmonary arrest, a heart attack, right? Not asphyxiation. And in fact, 
the autopsy specifically rules out asphyxia because there is no physical evidence whatsoever that is consistent with that. And all this talk about how George Floyd couldn't breathe, he couldn't breathe long before he was on the ground, long before there was a knee, which as it turns out was more on his back uh, than his neck, but on the upper part of the neck, not on the lower part where it would constrict oxygen from coming into the lungs. But there was even a point, the defense showed this, where Chauvin was actually lying on the ground, not in the prone position, but on his side, and he was still complaining that he could not breathe. And despite what these uh, ringers were saying, the, the facts and the evidence in this case do not support asphyxia. That is not why George Floyd died. He died of a cardiopulmonary arrest. That is the finding of the autopsy. Now, why did he have this cardiopulmonary arrest? Well, it complicated police, law enforcement, subdue, restraint, and compression. So what does that mean? That means that, and this is an explanation from Dr. Baker. This is not my explanation. I'm just repeating what Dr. Baker testified to on the stand. So the police had restrained, subdued George Floyd, and there was some compression because they're pinning him down. While they were doing that, he had a cardiopulmonary arrest. It was the cardiopulmonary arrest that complicated what the police were doing. And he explained this. This is like complications in a surgery. He's a doctor. He's using the word complications. Let's say somebody goes in for a routine surgery, right? The doctor is going to perform surgery, routine. No one is expected to die during this routine surgery. But then something happens. There is a complication. Something goes wrong that the doctor did not expect. And as a result of that complication, the patient ends up dying, right? And they always tell you that whenever you have a surgery, I mean, there's all sorts of risks. Something could happen even in a routine surgery uh, and you end up dying. There are people that end up dying. They get cosmetic surgery and something goes wrong and they die, right? And so what he's saying is it's not the surgery that is the reason the person died. The reason they died is that during the surgery, there was an unforeseen complication and it was that unforeseen complication that was the real cause of the death, not the surgery itself, because but for the complication, the surgery would have gone fine. So that's what he's saying about what the police did, what Chauvin did. They were subduing and restraining uh, this suspect who was resisting arrest under normal circumstances this would not have resulted in death. But under these circumstances, it did result in death because what they were doing was complicated by this cardiopulmonary arrest. Now, why did he have the cardiopulmonary arrest? You can see that on the autopsy too because there Dr. Baker lists the other contributing conditions to this cardiopulmonary arrest. One of them was arteriosclerosis. Uh, and he went over that. And he went over, I you know, one of the arteries was 90-something percent blocked. I mean, he had a serious, serious heart disease, uh, hypertensive heart disease. That's also there listed as a contributing condition. So he has arteriosclerosis. He has hypertension, right? His heart is all screwed up. And he testified that his heart just couldn't deal with these circumstances and the stress. And remember, prior to being subdued, 
There was a the struggle. He was fighting. He was resisting arrest for a long time. And so his heart rate was elevated, which is exactly what happened to him when he was arrested before. He almost died the last time he got arrested, but he didn't. He managed to survive uh, the last incident where he ingested a bunch of drugs, resisted arrest, got to the hospital, and he made it. That time he made it. Well, this time he didn't. Right? Then the drugs. Fentanyl intoxication. This is also listed as another factor causing the death. Fentanyl intoxication and the recent methamphetamine use. He had two drugs. And again, you also have to look at the interaction of how these drugs uh, interact with one another. So it's not just the problems of fentanyl on its own or the problems of methamphetamine on their own, but then what happens when you mix fentanyl, you know, which is kind of a sedative and methamphetamine, which is a stimulant. Now you've mixed those two together and you created another toxic combination. So you have all of these factors that led to this cardiopulmonary arrest that ended up complicating what was a routine law enforcement subdue restraint and compression that these officers, including Chauvin, had done many, many times in the past and nobody died, right? So clearly... The officers, including Chauvin, did not anticipate, did not expect their actions to result in the death of George Floyd. And of course, they did not expect George Floyd to die because they were being filmed. They were being filmed by the bystanders who had their cell phones. They were filmed by their own body-worn cameras. They were filmed by police security cameras that were on the streets. So if you're a policeman with all these witnesses, would you do something that you expected to cause the death of somebody? Of course not. The only reason that Derek Chauvin stayed in the position that he did with his knee where it was, was because he was under the impression that Floyd was not going to die and that nothing that he was doing was contributing to his death, right? That is obvious uh, from what was happening. But all you have to do, again, is read the autopsy itself to understand why George Floyd died. But for his heart disease and his hypertension, but for the fentanyl intoxication, but for the methamphetamines, George Floyd would have survived that day. Now the question is, might he have died anyway, simply as a result of all these other things, even if there was no uh, subdual uh, uh, restraint or compression? We don't know. I mean, maybe, but it's also possible that he would have survived. Like maybe he's survived other episodes of using a lot of drugs and, 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 and things like that. But you can't hold the police responsible because they don't know to the degree that which he has heart disease. They don't know how much drugs are in his system. They don't know that what they're doing is going to lead to his death. Now, the only problem with the autopsy for the juror's perspective is that under manner of death, Baker lists it as a homicide. And so the prosecution wants the jury to believe, aha, you see, the manner is homicide. He was murdered. Homicide does not mean murder in the medical sense. It simply means that Floyd died at the hands of another human being or other human beings, right? So he was being uh, restrained and compressed by other people 
that may have ultimately been complicated by a heart attack. But they're saying, hey, if these other people weren't there uh, restraining him, uh, then he probably wouldn't have had the heart attack at that time. And so we're going to call it a homicide because he died while being restrained by other people. But it doesn't mean the people who were restraining him murdered him any more than it means that a doctor murders somebody who performs a surgery if during that surgery there is a complication and the patient ends up dying. Look, there are a lot of ways that people can die from a homicide and it not be murder. Look, I can accidentally push somebody and they fall off a cliff. I can stumble. I hit some. I knock into somebody. They fall off a cliff and they die. All right. So I killed them. I pushed them. It's a homicide. But, you know, did I murder them? No. I mean, I didn't. I was an accident. Right. And so you're not going to go to jail because you accidentally killed somebody. Now, if you get drunk and get behind a car and then accidentally kill somebody, well, that's vehicular manslaughter. And you can go to jail for that because you committed a crime driving drunk. And while you were committing a crime, you accidentally killed somebody. That's the crime. But if I'm not drunk, I'm totally sober. I trip on a rock and fall. And then I inadvertently push somebody and they go over a cliff. That's an accident. Right? I killed that person. It was a homicide, but it wasn't a murder. And I'm not going to go to jail. And remember, the manner of death is how he died. It's not why he died. Why he died are the causes and the contributing factors, which include the heart disease, the hypertension, the fentanyl, the methamphetamine. And without those contributing factors, even with the law enforcement subdual and restraint, George Floyd would not have died. Another thing I wanted to point out, too, about the case, because earlier in the case, I thought that maybe Derek Chauvin was going to have to take the stand in his own defense, because I thought maybe the jury was going to need to hear from Chauvin his explanation with regard to why he acted the way he did, why he made certain choices. For example, why after Floyd became non-responsive, why he didn't administer CPR. I thought maybe the jury would need to hear from Chauvin himself an explanation. But once I saw how the case progressed and the evidence that was presented, I think that the call for Chauvin not to take the stand was a good one because I didn't think he needed to. Generally, defense attorneys don't want their clients to take the stand because remember, the state has the burden of proof and the state needs to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, if they don't do that during the course of the trial, then why put your client on the stand and give the government a chance to maybe, with a Hail Mary, uh, trip up uh, the, the defendant and get a conviction on that basis. So if you think the government has an extremely weak case and they did not prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, then why give them the opportunity to cross-examine your witness? You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Right. So, you know, no point. And I think in this case, the government didn't even come close to meeting that burden. But also there was a lot of evidence, I think, that was presented that provides the explanation that I thought Derek Chauvin needed to provide without Derek Chauvin having to take the stand and provide it himself, thereby subjecting himself to cross-examination. Because once you get on that witness stand, the government can now question you on, in any manner that it wants, right? Once you're up there. And so you can't just say what you want to say because the government has this opportunity uh, to uh, cross-examine you. And that is the reason that you don't want to take the stand. It's not that you don't want to defend yourself and, and state your rationale, but you don't then want to risk getting tripped up by a, a clever uh, prosecution, especially in this case. And I think there's many examples of prosecutorial misconduct in this trial because, again, the prosecutors are not supposed to be there to convict. They're supposed to be there to see that justice is served. And I think there is you know, multiple examples of prosecutorial misconduct that could be uh, elements for an appeal. Now, another piece of evidence that got in, which I think was another reason that Derek Chauvin did not have to testify is there was the video conversation that Derek Chauvin had with one of the bystanders in which he explained his actions to the bystander. He talked about the fact that George Floyd was a big guy, he was resisting arrest, that he had to be subdued. And so that was the equivalent of explaining himself to the jury. The jury got to hear Derek Chauvin's explanation for his conduct, or at least part of the explanation, without him having to take the stand and explain it for himself and then be subject to cross-examination. But also, all of this video evidence that was introduced also helps to explain to the jury why he did what he did. 
as did testimony of other witnesses, including the testimony of the government's witnesses under cross-examination. So that really allowed the defense attorney to help explain to the jury why a reasonable officer would in fact have made the decisions that Derek Chauvin made, whether or not those decisions with the benefit of hindsight were the right decisions or not, you have to put yourself in the place of an officer who is making these decisions real time under the stress of the circumstances. It's just like, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks. It's really easy to second guess what play should have been called when you already know the outcome and you've had plenty of time to reflect on all the various uh, you know, possibilities, but we're actually down there on the field uh, with the ball in your hand and the defense is charging at you and you've got to make a split second decision, you may not make the right one, but your decision may be reasonable at the time you make it. So even if you believe that the decisions that Derek Chauvin made were not the right decisions, were they reasonable for him to have made those decisions under the circumstances he was in? And the answer is obviously yes. You certainly can't say that beyond a reasonable doubt, these were unreasonable decisions that a reasonable officer couldn't have possibly made given the circumstances. But I want to get into a couple of the, the reasons I, I thought that my questions at least were answered. And one of the questions, again, that I always had, and I thought, look, None of the force that Chauvin or the other police used seemed excessive to me, given the facts of the circumstances, given the level to which Floyd was resisting arrest. Uh, it didn't look to me like the force uh, was unreasonable or out of the ordinary. And in fact, the policemen that did testify, and again, you know, normally you don't get this many policemen testifying against another policeman, but there is tremendous political pressure uh, you know, in Minneapolis to basically scapegoat Chauvin and everybody needs to agree that this guy is guilty. I mean, that's just the only way that they can survive uh, and continue to work in this community is to sacrifice Chauvin. So you have all these people who may normally be defending a fellow officer. Basically, he's the sacrificial lamb. But even the police, they pretty much agreed up until the point where George Floyd uh, was on the ground that the force was reasonable. And some of the police said it, the force was reasonable right up until the point where Floyd became non-responsive. And now you're talking about the final few minutes of the encounter where he basically stopped breathing and he was lying motionless. And during that period of time, Chauvin and the other policemen did not do anything uh, to try to revive him. They did not perform CPR. So in my mind, hey, maybe that was negligent. I mean, maybe they should have done something. Maybe they could have saved him had they started the CPR earlier, you know, rather than uh, waiting for the paramedics. So I wanted to know why. What was the point? Why didn't they start CPR? And I think the defense presented an excellent and very persuasive, to me anyway, argument as to why that aid was not rendered. And again, we don't even know if it would have been successful. I mean, even if they had started CPR earlier, Floyd still may have died, right? He may have had such a massive uh, heart attack uh, based on all the drugs and based on his underlying health issues that they weren't going to be able to revive him even if they started sooner. But maybe they could have, right? We're never going to know that. But the question is, 
Why did Chauvin and the other police, why did they wait? Well, first of all, they had already called for the paramedics. The paramedics were on the way. Remember, they made two calls to the paramedics. The initial call was simply to treat the abrasion, I think, to his face, uh, was his mouth or nose. I forget what, what was injured during the struggle. As he was struggling to get out of the back of that police car, uh, he was injured. And so the police called the paramedics out of concern for George Floyd's injury. They weren't trying to kill him. They were trying to help him. And in fact, when it became obvious that he had a bigger problem uh, than abrasions on his face, uh, that he was you know, really having a problem with his heart or breathing, whatever it was, they escalated the call to, hey, get here as quick as you can. Turn on your sirens. This guy needs help immediately. So they're really trying to help him. They're not trying to kill him. They want the paramedics to get there as soon as possible, right? If I'm trying to kill somebody, I want to delay the paramedics. Why do I want the paramedics to save the life of the guy I'm trying to kill? The fact that I'm trying to hurry them along means I want them to save him. Now, the question is, why didn't Chauvin and the police try CPR themselves? Well, here is the reason. Number one, they expected the paramedics to arrive any minute. In fact, somebody testified that they were only like two or three minutes away. So the fact that it took uh, however many minutes it did to get there was a surprise to the police because they did expect the paramedics to arise on the scene quicker than they did. So they're like, hey, these guys are about to be here. So we're just going to hold him in this position waiting for the paramedics to arrive. But the other reason that they didn't do something was because they were worried given the crowd and what the crowd was saying and what they were doing that the crowd represented a threat and therefore the environment was not safe for all these policemen to now turn their attention to uh, CPR uh, when they're dealing with a crowd. They're thinking, hey, we're just going to hold him here until the paramedics get here and that's going to be a safer way to deal with this situation. They think the paramedics are going to be there any second. And so they think it's better. That's a call that was made in the moment, whether it was right or wrong. It's a judgment call by the police. Hey, we've got this crowd here. And in fact, the defense, I think, did an excellent job of freezing the frames to the very point where several of the uh, government's doctors testified that Floyd took his last breath and finally uh, died uh, of the uh, heart attack. They, they said, here's when he died. And almost exactly at that moment is when Chauvin felt so threatened by the crowd that was approaching him that he pulled out his mace and shook it up in the air, basically saying, hey, back off. I'm going to use this mace on you if you don't back off. So here he is down on the ground. Chauvin is dying, but Chauvin is distracted by this crowd. And he feels the need to pull out his mace to try to keep the crowd back. So he is not believing that the circumstances are safe enough to do CPR. And if you look at the police manual, that's what it says. You know, when should you not do CPR if it's not safe? Now, the government was trying to make a big deal about the fact that, oh, you know, the, the crowd wasn't really a threat. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? There's a bunch of kids here. But in real time, when you have people around you shouting at you, screaming at you, calling you names, 
You don't know. I mean, anything can happen. Anything can change. These guys are on their guard. But what really proves to me that the idea and the perception that the crowd was a threat is the way the paramedics responded when they arrived on the scene. The paramedics get there. He's down on the ground. They see the crowd and they decide that it is an unsafe environment for them to do CPR because obviously when the paramedics do CPR, there's policemen to protect them, right? The policemen now can still concentrate on the crowd while the paramedics are doing CPR. But even under that circumstances, with police to protect them, the paramedics decided that the environment where they found Chauvin was unsafe to do CPR. So they did what they call the load and go, which is they loaded him under the ambulance and then drove him away to do the CPR. So even the paramedics who arrived late on the scene, they assessed the situation and said, it's unsafe to do CPR. Let's take the patient to a more safe location and do CPR. So if the paramedics concluded that it was unsafe, why is it unreasonable that Derek Chauvin made the same conclusion. Because if it wasn't safe for the paramedics, it was even less safe for the police. So to me, that alone raises reasonable doubt as to why Derek Chauvin did not administer CPR at that time. So it is very clear from the evidence at this case why George Floyd died. He died because... He had a very unhealthy heart, you know, high blood pressure, clogged arteries, and he made it worse for himself by ingesting large amounts of drugs. I mean, he was already on drugs before the police showed up because his friend that was in the car testified that he was falling asleep and hard to wake up. So he already had too much drugs. And then, you know, like a fool, in order to not get busted with drugs, somebody that already had a lot of drugs ate whatever drugs he had left, right? Because he didn't want the police to find him. So he made the situation even worse. Then he resisted arrest. Now, he may have resisted arrest in part because he was so screwed up on drugs, he didn't even realize he was resisting. I mean, he kept saying, hey, I'm cooperating, I'm cooperating, but he wasn't cooperating. That was the problem. And I, I think his judgment was impaired Uh, by the drugs that he was on. But the bottom line is, if George Floyd had not been so drugged up, if he had a healthy heart, he would have survived that encounter. The only reason he didn't survive was because of those other issues. And you cannot hold Derek Chauvin responsible for those other issues. He had nothing to do with that. He was just doing his job. And the only reason these other policemen are saying he wasn't is because they're being pressured. They're being pressured by their department. They're being pressured by the government. They're being pressured by the public. Everybody is being pressured to sacrifice this guy. And so that is what they're doing. And that brings me to another point as to why I think this whole thing could get thrown out on appeal if Chauvin is convicted. And that is because of the pressure on the jury. I mean, I think the judge in this case made a big mistake of not sequestering this jury, right? Because if you sequester the jury, then the jurors are not going to be as vulnerable to what's going on outside, especially when you are having these mass protests, you know, 
otherwise known as riots or looting, at the same time that the trial is going on. In fact, you had Maxine Waters, you know, leading these protests in the streets in Minneapolis, demanding a murder conviction, demanding convictions on all three counts. Guilty, guilty, guilty. And she is saying to a mob of people, if we don't get a guilty verdict, then we've got to stay in the streets. We need to get confrontational. This is a U.S. government official in the streets of Minneapolis saying, if we don't get a conviction, we're going to riot. We're going to get confrontational. We're going to stay in the streets, right? Now, the jurors, they're at home. Right, I know the judge says, hey, don't listen to the news. How are they not going to listen to that? How are they not going to inadvertently overhear that? And now you're a juror, right? You're sitting there. You know that the U.S. government, you know, you have the executive branch of government really interfering with the judicial. You have Maxine Waters leading a mob, right, inciting violence, saying, if we don't get this guilty verdict, then, you know, we're going to tear up this neighborhood, right? She's not saying we want the correct verdict. We want justice to prevail. She's saying we demand guilty, right? Doesn't matter what the evidence is. We don't care about that. We just want a guilty verdict regardless of the evidence. Now you're a member of the jury. Do you want to be responsible for looting and rioting? What if innocent people are killed because of an acquittal? Do you want that blood on your hands? I mean, people are kind of weighing, okay, do I send an innocent man to jail to save the lives of other innocent people that may die if I let this other guy go free. You know, I mean, a lot of times juries uh, will ignore the evidence and just render a verdict based on other factors. That's what happened with O.J. Simpson. I mean, why was O.J. Simpson acquitted? Because the jury didn't care about the facts and the evidence. They just wanted to acquit O.J. because that was the pressure. And in fact, they even interviewed these jurors. I mean, years and years later. And you know why they acquitted him? The, the, the real reason? It was payback for Rodney King. That was it. That's why they did it. They wanted to send a message to the police department. Hey, you know, th- this is your part. We're going to let this guilty man walk, uh, basically, uh, you know, as justice for Rodney King because the police there weren't, weren't convicted. So now we're not going to convict O.J. Simpson of killing two white people. Right. That that was basically basically it. So in that case, the jury ignored evidence of guilt and acquitted. In this case, the jury may ignore evidence of innocence and convict because of other factors. They want to validate the mob's demand for basically what amounts to a lynching. And, you know, Tucker Carlson uh, said that, too, on his show. And now, you know, they're demanding that he be fired uh, for comparing this to a lynching. But that's basically what's going on, because the lynching is, hey, we don't want justice. We're just going to kill this guy. Now, they're not threatening to kill him. They're threatening to just put him in jail. But who knows? That could be a death sentence. I mean, I don't think he's going to live long in the general population. Hopefully, if he does go to jail, that's not where he is. Um, But the point is, this is a mistrial. Because it's jury tampering. Because how can these jurors be expected to render a just verdict if they're afraid for their own safety or for the safety of their communities, of their friends, of their relatives, or even just 
uh, strangers that they don't know, but who may be innocent, who may end up dead if they don't convict. And not just convict, they need a murder conviction. Even if they try to say, look, we don't really think he's guilty, but look, we'll just give the government manslaughter. We'll just compromise and we'll convict him of something. So we'll say it's manslaughter, like, you know, he didn't mean to kill him, but whatever. But technically, he's not guilty of manslaughter. If you look at uh, what the charge entails, the government didn't even come close to proving manslaughter. But maybe they're thinking, look, I mean, we got to convict him of something. Uh, so we'll we'll take the, the lesser offense. Uh, but even that, I don't think, will be enough because the mob demands a murder conviction. But of course, this particular protest, right, Maxine Waters specifically saying we demand a guilty verdict is not the only thing that is tainting this jury. It's not the only reason that the jury should have been sequestered. I mean, first of all, the whole thing started off during the jury selection, you had the government concede the civil case. And I forget how many million, 25 million to $30 million the government agreed to pay the family of Joyce Floyd. They basically said, hey, you know, we did it. You know, we killed him. And here's this huge check. I mean, that sends a message right there to the jury. Oh, my God, he must be guilty. After all, the government is writing this big check. And the jury doesn't necessarily get the fact that there is a different standard between proving guilt at a criminal trial and what might have happened at a civil trial where you can win based on a preponderance of the evidence. Plus, I think the city itself had a different agenda. And so they were willing to um, concede this issue. But is it completely coincidental that they did it during the trial? Why couldn't they have waited until the trial was over and, and then... Uh, settle. In fact, it would make much more sense. Hey, let's wait for a, a conviction. And, and then if there's a conviction, well, maybe we'll settle. But I mean, if the guy walks and he's not held responsible, then you know maybe we don't want to settle this thing or not settle it for as much money. But that was just the beginning. What I think is a much bigger issue are the new protests that are going on in the streets of Minneapolis right now during the trial regarding the death of Dante White, right? You have the Black Lives Matter guys in the streets again, once again saying a black man is killed by a white police officer or former police officer now, Kim Potter. This is going on. You have supposedly another example of racist white cops killing innocent black men for doing nothing wrong, right? This is happening at the same time. You don't think these jurors who are going home every night in the same community are aware of what's happening around them, of this another incident and the pressure that is putting on them as jurors to convict Derek Chauvin? And again, if you look at the circumstances surrounding the Dante Wright death, It's obvious that the mob doesn't give a damn about the facts. It doesn't matter. Whenever a black person dies as a result of something that a white policeman does, it's automatically murder. It's automatically racism. In fact, if Dante Wright was white, they wouldn't even talk about his race. In fact, if Kim Potter were not white, if Kim Potter were black, So if Dante Wright was killed by a black police officer, none of their races would even be part of the story. 
But because the person who dies is black and the person who killed him is white, race is mentioned every time their name is mentioned. I don't think I've ever read a story about Dante Wright and Kim Potter that didn't preface Dante Wright as being black and Kim Potter as being white. That is the most important part of the story is the races of the people involved. I mean, this is all about advancing that narrative. But look, I was watching this weekend on Sunday, this week with George Stephanopoulos, and Martha Radish was interviewing Benjamin Crump specifically about the Dante Wright incident. And Benjamin Crump described the incident something like this. Dante Wright was pulled over for an expired tag. That's it. Expired tag, he gets pulled over. Then Kim Potter shoots him simply while he is trying to get back into his car. So pulls him over for an expired tag. Everything is fine. Now Dante Wright is trying to get back into his car and she goes and shoots him. And so even if she was confused and thought it was her taser, she had no right to use that taser. I mean, you don't tase a man because he's trying to get back into his car. So Benjamin Crump even said that the use of a taser under these circumstances was excessive and unlawful force. So even if she confused her taser with her gun, even the taser was unlawful, but he doesn't believe it was confusion. He believes that she deliberately shot him, that she knew it was her gun, because after all, how could you possibly confuse a gun for a taser? And so she deliberately drew her gun and shot him in cold blood as he was simply trying to get into his car and it's murder. And of course, the only reason it happened was because Dante Wright is black, right? And Kim Potter is white. If Dante Wright was white, he wouldn't have been shot. In fact, he probably wouldn't have been pulled over because he was white. But Dante Wright was pulled over for driving while black and then shot in cold blood by a racist white cop as he just innocently tried to get into his car. Basically, this is the way Benjamin Crump is explaining this. And Martha Radish lets him get away with it. She does not interrupt him. She does not try to say, oh, wait a minute, aren't you leaving out some very important facts? No, she just lets him lie through his teeth to her audience. Now, why is she doing that? Because as far as I'm concerned, ABC is responsible because you have a lot of people who believe this nonsense. A lot of people who listen to these guys they don't do the research, even though it's easy to do the research online and find out what actually happened. A lot of people don't do that. They just believe what they hear. And here you have this lawyer, obviously with a vested interest in making a bunch of money suing the government, right? He's, in, he's involved in all this. And so he is basically telling his story, telling his lie to advance his own political and economic agenda. And Martha Radish is too afraid to call him out because she doesn't want to be called a racist. So in order to not be a racist, if there is a black person on your show who is telling lies, you need to let them get away with it. I mean, if Benjamin Crump were white, do you think Martha Radish would allow him to just lie with impunity on her show? I don't think so, but she's treating him differently. She has to treat him with kit gloves because he is black. Now, to me, that's what's racist. You see, I treat people exactly the same regardless of their race. So if they're going to lie, I don't care if they're white or they're black, 
I am going to call them out on their lies. If you are willing to call out a white person who tells a lie, but not a black person, if you're going to give a black person some slack and well, he, it's okay if they lie because they're black, that's racist. What are the facts of this case? What should Martha Radish have interrupted Benjamin Crump to remind her audience? Yes, Dante Wright may have been pulled over for an expired tag. That may have been the reason, right? And that's legitimate. People get pulled over for expired tags all the time. A lot of white people get pulled over for that too, right? The problem wasn't that he got pulled over. The problem was when the police ran his ID, oh my God, there's a warrant for his arrest. So when the police stop somebody and there is a warrant for their arrest, it is their job to arrest that person. That's what the warrant for arrest means. You're a cop, you pull some over and he's, you know, there's a warrant for their arrest. You have to take him into custody. That's what you have to do. That's her job. Now, the minute Dante Wright is being placed under arrest, the minute the policemen say, hey, Dante, you're under arrest and they try to cuff you, what is Dante Wright supposed to do? He's supposed to cooperate with the police and allow the police to take him into custody. That's what he's supposed to do. And had Dante Wright done that, he would still be alive today. Nothing would have happened to him. But that's not what Dante Wright did. He tried to escape arrest. Now, resisting arrest, escaping arrest, that is another crime, right? In, in some cases, it could be a misdemeanor. In some cases, it could be a felony. I'm not really sure about uh, the distinction there, but I know it's a crime. I know resisting arrest is a crime. So now he's committing another crime. So in, his, in addition to uh, having a warrant for his arrest for another crime, his resistance is now another crime that he's committing. So now the police really have to take this guy in. And when Benjamin Crump says, well, he was shot you know, while he was trying to get into his car, why was he trying to get into his car? See, the impression that you would get if you just were watching uh, this show, right? And you were watching the interview and you heard uh, Benjamin Crump say, well, he was pulled over for an expired tag and she shot him while he was getting back into his car. What you think is, okay, the police pull him over. Uh, maybe they had him get out of the car for some reason. Normally, you, you know, when you get pulled over, you, you don't get out of the car. Uh, but I guess if you're being arrested, they got to get you out of the car. But the police pulled him over. Maybe he gets out of the car. They're talking to the police. And then the officer says, all right, so long. And then he's like, okay, I'm getting back in my car. And then she just grabs her gun and shoots him for no reason as he's trying to get into his car. Yes, he was trying to get into his car. He was trying to get into his car to escape the police. His intention was to jam on the gas and speed away and to evade arrest. That is the reason that Kim Potter tried to tase him, to prevent him from driving away and escaping arrest. But of course, another reason that she wanted to stop him from driving away was if he had been allowed to escape, they would have been forced to pursue him. And now it would have been a high-speed chase on the road. How many lives would that have endangered? How many times are people inadvertently killed based on a high-speed chase? I mean, maybe Dante Wright would have ended up dying from that. Maybe he would have crashed the car, which he ended up doing anyway, uh, but the passenger survived that crash. Maybe had there been a full-blown chase, maybe had she not tried to tase him, had they just chased him instead, maybe his passenger would have died in the car crash. 
Uh, maybe a police officer would have died. Maybe some innocent uh, bystander, somebody just driving on the road or a pedestrian. Maybe somebody else would have been hit and died. Who knows? Right. She's got a split second. Oh, my God. This guy, there's a warrant for his arrest. Now he's committing another crime. He's trying to escape. I got to tase this guy. She pulls out her taser, 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 taser to warn Dante. Hey, I'm going to tase you to let her fellow officers know I'm going to tase this guy. And during that moment, she made a mistake, didn't realize she was holding her pistol and she fired one shot and then realized that she shot him. Oh, my God, I just shot him. And he ended up dying. The point is, A, Benjamin Crump is deliberately lying about the facts to create the false impression that here is another example of a white racist cop murdering an innocent black person. At the same time, we're having the trial going on for the death of George Floyd when there's another white cop who's been accused of murdering him because he was black and the cop is racist. And now this thing is going on and the jurors are there at home. And if they're not hearing it directly, they're hearing it indirectly from other people around. And this is more pressure on these jurors to come back with a guilty verdict because if they acquit him, they're going to throw gasoline on this fire that is already burning. But the other important issue here that I think is really highlighted by this, in the George Floyd case, if you just look at the video, the video that was shot by the bystanders, it looks bad for Chauvin. I mean, it does. I mean, if you just take it out of context and you don't have any idea about what happened before the cameras were rolling, right? You didn't see the original body cams from the officers. You didn't see the toxicology report, uh, the autopsy, right? You didn't have any of this information. If all you had was, oh my God, what I just witnessed on that video, yes, I can see where people would say this is terrible, uh, the policeman uh, killed this guy. Now, again, to me, when it first happened, I'm like, well, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody murder somebody with all these witnesses? But I guess people in the black community must believe that police are so racist and they're so confident that they can get away with murder, even if it's filmed. Like, remember, Donald Trump said, hey, I can kill somebody on Fifth Avenue in front of, and, and nobody would convict me. Right. So maybe they think, hey, these policemen, they know that they can murder black men whenever they want because nothing's going to happen with them. So they don't care how many witnesses they are. They know they can get away with it, which, of course, is a bunch of nonsense. But I can see some people believing it. But the point is, if all you have is the video of Kim Potter shooting Dante Wright, it's obvious that it was an accident. And it's obvious that Dante Wright was trying to escape arrest and that Kim Potter tried to prevent him from escaping by tasing him and accidentally shooting him, right? So that is obvious. Yet despite the obvious accidental nature of this shooting, Kim Potter has been charged with second-degree manslaughter. Why? Because the mob demanded a prosecution of an innocent person. So if this could happen with Kim Potter, right? If somebody who's clearly not guilty of a crime is charged anyway to appease a mob, well, then why didn't the same thing happen uh, with Derek Chauvin? That's exactly what happened. You know, the Black Lives Matter guys, Benjamin Crump, would have maybe a tiny bit of credibility if they simply said, yeah, this time it was an accident, right? It can't be that every time a black person 
is shot by a white cop, it's murder, it's racism. I mean, maybe there's got to be every once in a while where that's not the case. And if this was the circumstances where you can say, hey, you know, we'll give them a pass. Yes, this is one of the rare circumstances where it wasn't the result of racism. Dante Wright wasn't gunned down because he was black. The problem was Dante Wright tried to escape the police, which he should not have done. There was a warrant for his arrest. He tried to evade uh, being taken into custody. He potentially put the innocent public at risk by maybe having a high-speed chase. And Kim Potter had no choice. Dante Wright left her with no choice but to reach for her taser and tased him. Unfortunately, a terrible tragedy because instead of grabbing the taser, she grabbed her pistol, something that has happened on average once a year for the past 20 years. It's not so crazy because it does happen. It's rare, but it happens. And so in this circumstance, it happened. And why can't the Black Lives Matter guys, why can't Benjamin Crook just say, okay, yep, this time it wasn't racism. This time it wasn't murder. Uh, You know, we don't need to prosecute uh, Kim Potter. No, it doesn't matter. No matter what the circumstances are, BLM, Benjamin Crook are always going to ignore the facts. No matter how strong those facts are against their narrative, they don't care because they are going to take any example they get because that's how rare this actually is. They're not going to let this opportunity pass. If there is a white policeman and a black suspect dies, we don't care about the facts. We don't care about the circumstances. We need this to be racist. We need this to be yet another example of why black lives don't matter. And that's what's going on. And to me, just looking at this, if they can ignore all the obvious evidence of innocence on the part of Kim Potter, then obviously they're ignoring the more nuanced evidence of innocence with respect to Derek Chauvin. (laughs) 